gosh, I hear my own voice coming back to me. <laughs> um, it's very nice to have a lot of people. Um, it's also quite awe-inspiring. It, 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 and also very humbling to come to a place like this. A lot of my heroes on the walls, a lot of my heroes sitting in chairs looking at me. Um, so it's, it's a great pleasure. And what I should say right at the beginning is that the point of view you're going to hear from me is a pretty unconventional one. I try to put on my most conventional clothes and tie and shirt to allow me to be as unconventional as I'm going to be. Um, and I think it's quite important. I have found it very important indeed. I, I'm very much a Plato reader. I wouldn't like to call myself a Platonic scholar, but Plato reader. And the book of Plato's most influential to me is the Timaeus which is the cosmogony. It's probably the most influential cosmogony that's ever been written. Cosmogony meaning the birth of the universe rather than the ongoing universe. And in it, Socrates turns to Timaeus and says, please will you now tell us how the universe started? Well, I think Timaeus was quite understandably and genuinely shocked to have this question thrown at him. I didn't think he, he knew he was being invited to this party to explain how the universe began. So he um, said, well... First of all, you've got to pray to every god and goddess you know um, to make sure they're on your side. Then he said, I want you also to know that you who are listening and I who am speaking, we're only mortal. And all we can do is to give you a likely story. So that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to give you a likely story. Um, I've spent most of my life investigating geometry in different ways and I'd like to start off by saying that I'd like to make a dedication, first of all, to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. I'm immensely grateful, as I'm sure Dick is too, that we were chosen by him to support his ideas and try and get his school of architecture going under incredible amount of opposition. But um, that's the nature of the beast at the moment. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the whole of civilization is under threat at the moment, but that's, I'm, I'm not one of these media people to, st to stir up anxiety. Uh, it just happens to be a matter of fact. So um, I'd like to dedicate it to him, and I'd like to dedicate it to three other people as well, two who have recently passed on, and that's Martin Lings and Kathleen Rain, two working colleagues of mine, and one who's just recently had a heart operation in the United States. He's been a great inspirer of mine, Sayed Hussein Nazr. Um, Sayyid Hussein Naz was the first person to invite me into Islam and stir up my interest and cause my dedication and the starting of the Vita program by going to um, Iran uh, a long time ago now. But um, I want to dedicate it to those three people and the Prince of Wales. I think I shall add Dick as well, if I may. <laughs> Um, okay, so what we'll do, we'll have the first, if we can have the lights down, have the first slide on that side. <coughs> um, I happened to find this slide at the last moment, and this is Seyd Hussein Naz, who's looking at me as I take the photograph. Um, Kathleen Rain is here, and believe it or not, this figure, which is moving out of the picture here, is Martin Ling. So the three people I've dedicated, working colleagues. This is a, a conference we were all together at in Delhi uh, some years ago now. Uh, this is the person who should be the king of Kashmir, but nobody's allowed to talk about that these days. Kings are not madly fashionable. Next one here, please. 
And these are two books by Martin Lings, which, both of which are on sale here. I'm very pleased that Stephen Overy has been able to come and bring representation of the work of Temenos. Now, this particular talk is, has the word sacred attached to it. And um, quite understandably, people are quite shy about the meaning of the word sacred. I have got a very straightforward definition. And in fact, I, all the years that I've been teaching, the first thing I say to any student is be very clear what you mean when you use a term, when you use a word. And as far as I'm concerned, the word sacred means that which is essential to life. Now, that can mean for many different people with many different attitudes as to what is essential to life, what is sacred to them. You can say that which is sacred to human life, which is also true, but it's good to remember that life is the most miraculous thing that's happened in this universe. There's no explanation for it, there's no scientific explanation for it, and life is the nearest thing to have been eternal since it first emerged. These are just thoughts. As I said, I'm only going to tell you a likely story. I'm not here to prove anything to anybody. I'm not here to indoctrinate anybody. I just want you to share the kind of thoughts that I've been working with over the last few years. Next one on that side, please. So, what is sacred geometry? I've just made the explanation that what is sacred is that which is essential to human life. What you're looking at there is again something which we can't explain, although um, some scientists will make a shot at making a chemical analysis of it. You're looking at an enzyme, an incredibly important part of the synthesis of life. That is an image of an enzyme, microscopically small of course, but nevertheless quite stunning in its geometry. And, as I said before, it is essential to life. Next one over on this side, please. So then, I decided that I would go further and say, as far as I'm concerned, sacred geometry is the spiritual or hidden spine within all sacred art. It's not often seen. Sacred geometry, more often than not, is actually beneath the surface. And it doesn't need to have got there intellectually or willfully. It, it can arrive there through the intuitions of the artist or carver or calligrapher, doesn't matter which. But it is the, one of the most important animating and order-making principles in all the arts and crafts as far as I'm concerned. And again, I call it sacred because without that dimension, it becomes flaccid and it doesn't last. It, it, it drops back into the world of fashion and the world of fashion passes. But any great work of art breaks the time barrier. And it breaks the time barrier because it has the support of sacred geometry, as far as I'm concerned. Next one here, please. So when we see something like that, it might appear at first glance to be a relatively, relatively crude drawing, but it is a canon of proportion for Byzantine, Orthodox Byzantine icon painting of the head of Jesus. We'll come back to this image, but those three circles are, the, are, get, are larger than each other by the same amount each time. But there is a ex very good example of sacred geometry being used as a basis. And I'd like you to try and remember that image in your mind because I'll come back to an analysis of that. There's a great deal of secret geometry hiding in that little image. 
which is part of the oral tradition. Sacred geometry was never written about a great deal. I'm very pleased to say, and I'm very, well, I will apologize immediately, that there's a very important lute player in the audience, and he used to be a, a, a student of mine, and he confirmed to me a little earlier this evening that not much has been published about the geometry of lute making. And that is true of nearly all the great sacred arts. There was, um, Titus Burkhardt suggested there was a thing called a Collegium Fabriorum, which was an oral tradition that ran through, and the information was passed on from master to student, but not written down and not published. Very rarely written down and published. Next one here. Next one here, please. So, um, could we just turn this one out for a moment, because it's so bright, it's rather uh, too bright for the... You just turn the projector off on this side. Is that possible without upsetting life or put your hand in front of it or something? Thank you. It's a little bit easier to see the sunrise um, there and it's a reminder of the part of our daily experience we take so much for granted that we hardly stop to think how important it is that the sun does rise I'm sorry to say something which sounds utterly trivial but if the sun didn't rise we have a few minutes left and we'd all be gone um, so the sun rises, and in this particular case, I'm using this image to go through the most immediate experience. We may or may not um, follow this experience, but there we have the light of the sun. That's the highest level of vibration in physical matter. The sun, as a point there, point of light, is distributing its reflection in a line, which is the process through which all things come into being. They start with a point. They proceed to become a line. Then the sea which it's on becomes the surface, or uh, one might say the plane. And then the whole of the air that we're looking at there is the solid space, which is invisible to us. It's very interesting. Two of the elements are invisible, and two of the elements are visible to us. So we have earth, air, fire, and water presented to us every morning that we care to go out and watch the sunrise. And we may even not even think that is all that important. We may decide a cup of coffee or our porridge is far more important in the morning. Nevertheless, there we have that experience offered to us. Can we have the next one on this side now, please? So, again, going back to the word geometry, a fascinating word. Uh, the geo part of it comes from Gaia, which is Mother Earth. And I very much... I'm in tune with Martin Lings, whose books I put on the screen earlier. He wrote a very, very good book called Symbol and Archetype, in which he says probably the greatest loss to 20th century humanity has been the loss of the sense of the symbol, or the loss of the symbolic sense. Once we reduce human experience down to just literalness, we have lost everything. We've lost art, culture, um, civilization, everything. So Gaia, Mother Earth, Metri to measure or the measure of. Metri itself means mother. So both the words, geometry, are a double mother symbolism. Meta in Greek, the original, is mother too. Next one over there, please. So, what is for sure is that the most important thing in life on the planet, and if you like, life is the great miracle, 
is the sun. And the sun is, has no hesitation in reminding us if we wish to look at it, although in fact we cannot look at it once it's reached its... If it goes above the horizon, the diameter of the sun goes above the horizon, it's dangerous on the human eye. It's the only thing in the natural world we can't look at. But we can watch it up to the point in which the bottom part of the circle is touching the horizon still. It's still safe. Once it leaves the horizon, it's a danger, it burns the eye. But what it's showing us in its great power at every level, symbolic and natural, is that it is pure geometry. It is the most important geometric shape, the all-embracing circle. The symbol of eternity and the simplest and most embracing of all geometric forms. Of course, it's this particular slide I've got here shows its important value, immediate direct value to the natural world. Next one here. The vegetable world, in fact. Next one, please. There are some images one doesn't need to say a word about. Some of you may be aware of the fact that the eagle owl has returned to this country. I learned that after I selected this slide. But perception is absolutely fundamental to A, being human, and B, to civilization generally. So I'm going to put a quotation on the next screen from Plotinus. Plotinus probably being my next most favorite philosopher after Plato. It's an incredibly profound statement. It seems to be possibly light and poetic when you first read it. But it's actually, the basis of that statement is that the most fundamental truth about the whole universe is that everything is inseparable, ultimately. And separation is the one thing that begins, is the basis of all conflict. Unnecessary to add. Next one on this side. Next one, please. So I thought it would be, and I always do find it extremely moving and valuable, whenever I find a quotation by Native American, Native North American Indian. When I was 10 years of age, I looked at the land and the rivers, at the sky above and the animals around me, and could not fail to realize that they were made by some great power. Very, very important. It's what's called the metanoia experience that most children go through, and then they go to school and have it drummed out of them more often than not, sadly. But just going to remain with that for a bit and go back into next one over there, please, on the right. Very, very important aspect of geometry is not only the roundness of the sun, but the angularity of the way we in which we experience light. Light is the highest metaphor for the intellect. We talk about being enlightened. We talk about light falling on a subject when we have difficulty with it. And what's intriguing about light, and you can explain it in any way you like, but is the triangulation that light takes up when it's in the natural form like that. Next one here. And I just want to draw attention to this part of this slide here so that we can get into the most dense level of the four elements, the element of Earth. I don't know how many people in the room are aware of the fact that Aristotle didn't have any written numerals. Not, neither did Euclid, neither did Plato, neither did any of the classical Greek philosophers. They did not have written numerals. 
doesn't mean to say they couldn't calculate, but it's the kind of thing which we easily miss because we think written numerals are terribly important. Written numerals actually do separate out the numerical part of the mind, and it's part of the fact that I was brought up by some extraordinary American, which you will have heard of, some of you and some of you not, Richard Buckman Fuller. And he said to me one day, Keith, there are no universities. There are no universities. There are only diversities. And I'm afraid I agreed with him. Anyway, this is the way in which Pythagoras and Aristotle and Plato, they all calculated with pebbles, just in case you didn't know. This pebble in Greek is called a halix, K-H-A-L-I-X. In Latin it became calcis, and that is the root of the word calculation. Calcis, a stone, a pebble. They got strung up on lines and became an abacus, which you all are familiar with. And the wearing of beads around the neck of ladies sometimes are decorative, sometimes are of religious nature, because the number of beads are to do with how many prayers you have to say and so forth. But... Beads and pebbles have always been very fundamental, close to human beings for different reasons. Next one on the right, please. So, not only did they calculate with pebbles, the beauty of a pebble, and they chose round ones to deal with because the round was the least biased in any direction. Immediately you deal with a pebble and a group of pebbles, geometry and arithmetic are inseparable. And this was the main reason. Once you put little spheres together, they become geometric patterns as well as numerical patterns. That, that is an eightness there. It's a symmetrical eightness, and I can increase that next one here. shows an increase in that eightness, just simply in a pattern form. Next one on this side. So you have three eightnesses, and you have four squares, which you can see quite clearly, and you begin to get into the whole business of geometric grids. There are 24 pebbles there, and it's interesting how you count those 24. You can either say there's four, fours are 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, or you can say there are three eights, and then the peripheral, add the peripheral ones. Many ways of approaching it. But this is how the Greeks did their mathematics, and their mathematics and their geometry was inseparable. Next one on the right. And of course, those who are selling fruit in the market and I first experienced this myself in Africa where oranges were sold in the local market and they either piled them up with a four-fold base or a three-fold base and immediately they had two platonic figures. These are the children who are selling oranges in Kumasi where I was in Africa. But anybody who's put fruit together will find the same truth. This is symbolic very much of the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. That is the meaning at a symbolic level of what it means to put seven spheres of the same size together. Of course, these peaches are not exactly the same size, but nevertheless, the symbolism is, 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 is apt. Next one here. Now, we're making a huge jump, and this is one thing that one can say is remarkable about the modern world, is what you're looking at now, we are told, is the nearest the human eye has been able to get to seeing an actual atom. Each one of those little points of light in there, each one of those little points of light represents an atom. Absolutely fascinating. Now, that, little, that pattern of peaches you can see there, you'll find that pattern sitting in here. There are, three, there are sorry, three reds and three yellows and one yellow in the middle. 
there's that pattern. Of course, you can see squares coming up, you can see uh, triangles and hexagons coming up. So those are the only ones you're likely to see and on a two-dimensional plane. That is quite staggering, and what's so staggering in a way is that the Greeks came to the theory of atoms, atom, uncuttable. My own pet theory is that they meant by uncuttable not to be cut, not that it couldn't be cut, but not to be cut. They knew that if you go on sectioning something enough, your mind will blow as much as your cutting, whatever it is you're cutting into pieces will blow. Too much analysis, dangerous. Have to be careful what I said, there may be some analysts in here. <laughs> um, next one on the fruit side, please. Next one on the right. There is the, 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 the whole photograph of which this little specimen has come from. And look how extraordinarily exquisite the atomic world is. And, and how extraordinary that it's so closely predicted by people as far back as the ancient Greeks and Pythagoras who had no chance whatsoever of, of, of coming to see an atom, but they were able to arrive at the idea of, of these atomic particles and they assumed, and they assumed re relatively accurately, that they would behave as the, their pebbles did. Just extraordinary. That is a tip of a tungsten needle and it was taken probably about 12 years ago, maybe a little bit more. Exquisite that nature is so geometrically beautiful at source. Next one here. And this is out of focus. Don't worry, projectionist. This is out of focus. It's a bad slide. But you may or may not know, you may or may not, you may know very much better than me, and, and that's not difficult. There are only ten possible shapes which atoms get into when they're relating to each other here in planar form, two forms of triangle, two forms of square, one form of pentagon, one form of hexagon, then two, three, three hexagon forms. These are buckled hexagons. One form an octagon and a buckled octagon. Ten shapes. And then three-dimensional shapes here. Of course, those are three-dimensional because they're buckled, but basically ten flat shapes and seven only three-dimensional shapes that the atomic world gets into. And when you think how much atomic physicists get paid for their research, um, sometimes you wonder if they're a bit overpaid. Sorry. <laughs> but this simplicity is amazing. Plato first platonic figure. Second platonic figure. Third platonic figure. So the first three platonic figures are, are confirmed as being the way in which atoms relate to each other. We don't need to go into that any further, but just might be a reminder to you, ten at the top, seven at the bottom. Two good numbers and true. Next one on the right, please. So, once again, geometry. Geometry directly in our experience. In this case, maybe the more Nordic experience of geometry, walking through a woods in the early morning and the sun has just broken and you become absolutely staggered at the beauty of the radiant lines as they make their way through the trees. So, the question, going back to the eye of the eagle owl. Who is it who's looking? Who is it who's looking at those trees? Who are you looking at this screen? How often do we have the luxury of asking ourselves who we are? Back to the analyst Dick. <laughs> um, so, um, I'm putting an image on the next screen here of the 
question, what is man? What is mankind? One should say, what is mankind? Of course, more often than not, they tended to be men, but the gender factor isn't important. The word man, by the way, is not an, a, a gender word at all. Originally, it comes from manas, very ancient word, um, what's called the Indo-European word, and it means the conscious animal. Man, the conscious animal. Man and woman are united in the word man. It's become a gender word in recent usage, but originally it was not. So here's the anthropos, the image of man. Man made in the image of God, according to more than one sacred tradition. And the questions that that gives rise to. Next one on the right, please. Very, very briefly and um, unsatisfactorily, I'm just going to show you the three shapes which recur right through all the different traditions. Here they are. The pentagon and the triangle at the base of the pentagon to the center of the pentagon. The square and half the square, the triangle, and sometimes half the triangle. These three are analyses of a sacred dwelling made in the far east, um, just at the edge of the Pacific Ocean, in which the dead were placed so they got to the other world comfortably. And every one of these proportions, 72 degrees, 45 degrees, and 60 degrees, are built in to the design of this particular little hut which was made for the dead. These are very much the living. And these are, this is the same barn behind here. It's one of the big aisled barns that we kept our grain in. Christendom and any civilization in the end relies on what grain it can keep over the winter. <clears throat> That's what decides on a civilization. And so <clears throat> there, <coughs> excuse me, I, can't, I, I do apologize, you can't read the barn all that well. There is the five-fold symmetries going on there. If that is one, that bottom line, that will be a gold of mean large, or that triangle there. I noticed, by the way, that man right behind the projectionist, the painting of him has a gold of mean uh, triangle on his desk, um, which is quite unusual. You can't buy them any longer. Make a fortune if you made those, Dick. Yeah. All the mean triangles, yeah, that, that one there. Um, the 60 degree one, uh, uh, 45 and 60 degree and 60 degree. All those are proportions of the same barn. Those proportions are very easy to establish because the barn is laid down on the ground before it's raised. So it's not a difficult thing. You don't, it's not a matter of thinking of geometry going up in the air and did they proportion it away. No, they laid it down on the ground. They did it with a rope. Trammel with rope. Next one here. So, that's the image I asked you to remember. And you'll see the little waves in the hair, which may have looked as if they were sort of relatively arbitrary, are not arbitrary at all. They actually establish a perfect 72-36 triangle. It's that triangle which is in the, in the barn there. And it allows a five-pointed star to be drawn within that circle, and that actually gives a ten-sided figure around this central circle, and we can see the bottom of that five-pointed star, determining the length of the nose of Christ there. <coughs> That's only one of the analyses you can make of that diagram, and that was not published. So, um, I have no doubts at all that these positions here and these positions here were to indicate that proportion to the top point of the, there. But I'm not selling anything to anybody. If you don't want it, don't take it. I'm not trying to insist or prove anything. Next one over here. 
So here's Frithjof Schoen. There are quite a few extraordinarily good books by Frithjof Schoen for sale on the table over there. Stephen's bought them from our Temenos thing. Frithjof Schoen is one of the most remarkable intellects in our own times. Uh, I believe he's passed on now, hasn't he, Stephen? Yes. Um, but he's been an incredible influence and has written on all the different traditions in the most brilliant manner. But here is a definition of sacred art, a very, very interesting definition. Sacred art is made as a vehicle for spiritual presences. Now, that's not something we talk about too much these days. But many people in this room will have experienced this, and they probably don't want to talk about it, or they don't talk about it, or maybe they do talk about it, because they understand it very well. But sacred art is made as a vehicle for spiritual presences. It is made at the same time for God, for the angels, and for man. Profane art, on the other hand, exists only for man, and by that very fact betrays him. This is Fritz Job Stewart speaking, but it's a very powerful statement and something which bears considering if you really want to know, are you looking at something which is a sacred piece of art? Was it intended to be a sacred piece of art? And so forth. Next one on this one. So this is one of the most extraordinary things that one of my students discovered during his MA um, program at Vita. This is so extraordinary that none of the astronomers that we've sent this material to have been able to reply to it. They just tend to shrug and say, so what? What it's actually saying here, if this, if that, which he's uh, shaded it, that is the body, the mean body. And by mean, what one means by mean is taking the Earth, which is not a perfect sphere, we know it's not a perfect sphere, but without changing its mass, reducing it to a perfect sphere, which is its archetype, <coughs> that is the Earth, in a perfect spherical form, without changing the amount of Earth that is involved. And that is the body of the planet Mercury, or Thoth, if you like, or Hermes. This is the planet Mercury, in its, also in its mean proportional state, and it happens to do exactly the same thing it did in that icon, by sheer coincidence, of course. There is an exact golden mean relationship. That is the golden mean to that, that is the bigger golden mean to the smaller. Mercury, as a planet, is exactly a golden mean smaller in mass than the planet Earth. Of course, there's no interest to astronomers, because all astronomers now believe everything's a big bang, everything's chance, the whole thing doesn't really matter, and anyway, we're steering a wonderful path down to our great goal, nihilism. Sorry, I'm being doomish now. Don't believe a word I'm saying. But that's not enough. The sun is in the middle, we know, mechanically. Around the sun, nearer to us, to the sun, nearer to the sun than we are, is the orbit of Mercury. Then you move out and you get the orbit of the planet Earth. The orbit of the planet Earth and the orbit of the planet Mercury are in exactly the same relationship as the masses of their bodies. And so far as I'm concerned, this is absolutely astounding stuff. And I'm not surprised the astronomers don't want to know about it because it implies there actually might even be some intelligence behind the universe. And you can't have that because the Big Bang didn't have a cause. Sorry, I'm being a bit naughty, but nevertheless, that's the current position. No cause to a Big Bang? Ridiculous. Sorry. So, there you go. We have that relationship. This is, this is Mother Earth, and this is the god Hermes. The god Hermes brought to human family, writing and numbers. Hermes' wife, Seshet, 
brought geometry, female brought geometry to the Egyptian civilization, which I'm going to come on to later. Next one on the other side there. So, what is extraordinary about the disruption of nature? Leave nature alone and it will find rest and it will find peace. Of course, there's very stormy aspects of nature too, but that little drop of milk that went into that surface of milk there sent back up <clears throat> its reaction to the force of the drop hitting the surface of the milk and reformed itself into as near to a perfect sphere at the top, which is a rather extraordinary, remarkable, remarkable thing. And the proportion, the whole thing is rather beautiful to say the least. We've only been able to see this because we've now got strob, <coughs> strob lights, very fast lights and fast cameras. <clears throat> now the next thing I'm going to show you on this side is a quotation from the Holy Quran. Next one, please. Here. We made from water every living thing. Will they not then believe? What is for sure is that water is a miraculous element on this planet. It is the only element on this planet which gets lighter when it's solid. The only one. And because it gets lighter when it's solid, it means that the circulation of the oceans, which keep life in the right temperature, can happen. Every other element, when it gets solid, is heavier, except water. Water is an extraordinary. It misbehaves completely. Um, just a straight piece of science, if you like. Anyway, this is from the Holy Quran, and therefore it's very interesting just to look at... Next one here, please. Just for a moment to look at water and see what it has to say to us. Next one on that side, please. So, whenever you let the water out of your bath, should you go under with your goggles on, you might watch the water going out of your bath looking like that, because that's what it normally does. That's the way water evacuates if it's left alone and not too disturbed. Next one here is a very solid calcious shell of a little creature that has lived quite a long time. I'd just like you to observe each time. It's like an apartment block. Exactly the same. Anybody got an explanation? Please put their hand up now. Thank you. I have no explanation either. Next one over there. And if we look at the leaf, we see one or two absolutely beautiful geometric progressions. A very slender one, a little bit more robust one, a little bit more robust again, an even more robust one. Now, all those are mathematical. They're all mathematical. And not only that, all leaves are different. We, how do we tell the difference between one bush or a tree to another? Because the leaf is different and the shape is different. Next one here, on this side, please. So, one very beautiful way of looking at how that occurs, this is really rather upside down, but this is, this is both mathematics and geometry. We make an equilateral triangle. Then, from the centre of the bottom of the equilateral triangle, make another equilateral triangle which crosses at right angles there, and so you've got the next smaller equilateral triangle. Centre of that, make the next smaller equilateral triangle. Centre of that, make the next smaller one. And then, follow round a progression and you'll see one of the progressions that the natural world uses to grow leaves and other things in. Here's a good next one on that side goes from a leaf to a seashell. Next one on the right, please. There we go. You've seen seashells like that, no doubt. But there is the mathematics of life. 
Now, you can take any explanation you like, and of course, if you want a godless universe, the whole thing has come about because it's convenient for the creature to do that. That's fine, if it's what you wish. Next one on this side. Here is two stages in the creation story of the Lenalapi Indians from North America. Very simple, apparently crudish sort of drawings, but they're, no, they're not crude at all when it comes to it, the breakdown of them. And this is the, there's quite a few stages before this, and quite a few stages after it. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. The first thing that happens here. Then he made them all to move evenly. One of the translations of this, he made them all to move in harmony. But I would just like you to look, movement of the sun, there are 12 points around the sun, which no doubt are indicating a 12-ness to do with the zodiac. But what we see here is an extraordinary wavy path. The moon is part of a wavy path, which has 21 dots in it. Now, none of these things are clumsy or by coincidence or primitive or any of these things. The fact of the matter is the moon does not do that, but the planets do. Many of you in this room have probably studied the retrograde motion of the planets because it's so fascinating, not just for astrological reasons, just for sheer fascination. Now, next slide on that side, please, is a time image of three different planets going through their retrograde motions. They happen to be going through it in the same place in the sky. That is the movement that the planet makes over a period of time. That's what it's meant by the word retrograde. It goes backwards and then it goes forward again. It's making a loop. This is often quite an embarrassment to modern teachers of astronomy for children. They say, tell us about that, and sometimes the teacher doesn't want to do it because it's so complicated to explain. That is scientifically accurate as to what happens in the sky. So why, do we evas- why are we evasive about retrograde motion of planets? The reason is because the sun's in the middle and we go around it. Therefore, that kind of thing shouldn't happen. But of course it should happen, because we are, when we place ourselves in the middle of the universe, and for God's sake, where else are we? We're at the middle of our own experience, we're at the center of our own experience, we're at the center of the universe when it comes to experiencing and perceiving the universe. And as from the point of view of the Earth, that is how the planets behave to us visually. Next one here shows it mechanically. There's, this, there's ourselves on Earth experiencing Mercury, and this is what Mercury does in relationship to us over one single year. This is the path of the sun. We all know the sun rises and sets. We're told at school the sun is in the middle, it's quite still, and everything's going around it. No experience that we have can demonstrate that. We have no way of looking at the sun and keeping it still and us going around it. So we're told, oh, we're all modern now, since such and such a person discovered this, that, and the other. Just take it from us, take it from the book, don't go by your experience. The whole point about life is that we wake up in the morning, we go to sleep at night, and we have the, the whole experience of our daylight hours of how we spend our day. So here is one year's movement of Mercury, and this was charted in 960-something. There's an image of it having been charted in ancient China, and I've no doubt all the ancient civilizations knew this, but they didn't publish it so much because of the confusion it might cause. So every 21 days, there's... It's, retrograde and back again. So if we chart the basis of the retrograde motions of Mercury, we see they're in triangular form. The nearest they are to us, and Mercury is very bright in the sky when they're very near to us, it's, it's going to go on moving around as it goes. 
but we have a triangle of the nearness and a triangle of the furthest part. So once again, in time, Mercury is demonstrating a geometry, both an organic geometry and straight line geometry. Should we wish to study that? Next one on that side. And this is just a matter of proportion to show you how proportion and geometry work. That is the relationship between the orbit of the Earth, that's the orbit of the Earth, and that's the orbit of, of um, Mars. And if we take the orbit of the Earth and draw a perfect pentagon around it, and take the points of that pentagon to be the center of the line of another pentagon, a regular pentagon, remember the golden mean relationships, and then draw a circle around that, we arrive at 99.9% .9 accuracy to the orbit of Mars. In other words, John Martineau, when he did this MA degree, found between every pair of planets and the whole set of planets, there were very precise geometries between all of these things, if you're willing to take the idea of finding the mean orbital or the mean body of that planet. That is the archetype of it. Meaning changing it from an ellipse to a circle without changing the distance it goes to try and understand how it works. Next one here. This is another quickie, if you like, between Jupiter and Saturn. If you do the orbit of Jupiter and draw a square around it, you then take the um, point of the square, measure back to the orbit of Jupiter and do a circle. You can do it four times, draw another circle around that, and you get the orbit of Saturn, the orbit of Jupiter, to 99.7% accuracy. If you wish to look at the universe this way, it's beautiful, it's ordered, and it's in proportion. But the astronomers at the moment are too shy to do so. There's a little joke I saw in the garden the other day, one astronomy student saying to another, oh, you'll lose your grant if you challenge the Big Bang. The next one over there, please. And there's more seriousness in that joke than you'd think. Next one over here, please. Slide on that side won't come down, will it? Sadly, but because um, I wanted to make the point, which I really quite like making, and that is, how many people in this room have ever really stopped to think there could be any possible reason why the sun and the moon are exactly the same size in the sky. Complete coincidence, completely chance, it must be. But the sun and the moon are exactly the same size. So when we have an eclipse, we have these extraordinary effects. Of course, there are annular eclipses where there's a slight difference and you get a little ring. But on the whole, the sun and the moon are as near to exactly the same size. Here is the, here is the symbolism that lies behind that traditional symbolism. Don't worry, we'll move on to the next one. And the one after that. Okay, leave it on that one, that's fine. So, if this is the sun, this is the moon. And this comes from Buddhism. This comes from ancient Buddhism. And the overlap between the sun and the moon is called manas. That is the word where man comes from. The, the conscious animal. This is also the shape or the whole drawing is the very first proposition of Euclid. Euclid draws a line between that point and that point and makes an equilateral triangle. And his first proposition is how you construct an equilateral triangle. Anyway, what it means is that you've got universal consciousness on this side. These are things which are always true, symbolized here. And these are things which are only true by sensory experience. Now, I have to let you know that as far as I'm concerned, people are a little bit lazy about, when they use the word science, I had, a, one of my teachers was a man called Fritz Schumacher, 
who wrote Small is Beautiful. He said, if anybody in conversation uses the word science, stop them immediately and say, which science are they talking about? Is it the science of understanding or is it the science of manipulation? Now, we use the word science these days terribly crudely and clumsily as if it was some sort of natural monster which didn't need to have even a spokesman necessarily. Time and again on the news, you'll have the science says this and science says that. Or certain scientists are looking at this and certain scientists are looking at that. Well, science is, in the modern sense, has to be prefixed by the word empirical. What we, the, we use the word science these days as, it is the science of sensory experience and confirming sensory experience between different people then they agree to a proposition. But the science of the soul is something which has completely been almost banished and hardly thought about. The science of spirit, science of soul, psychological sciences, all those things which civilizations of the past are based on have been forgotten. Conveniently so, but that's another story. What you're looking at there is two circles crossing over like this. I've drawn a line down here and a line between the centre of the two circles. That is the square root of three, if that is one. And the beauty of the square root of three is you can't calculate it on a, com- on a computer. You can't get a whole number. Your computer will run out, the, the energy in the universe will run out before you can actually get it to come to it final answer. Square root of 3, square root of 2, square root of 5, those three proportional shapes are incalculable in terms of final numbers on a computer. That's why they're called transcendental as far as I'm concerned. Now not only that is true, but this distance between the outer part of that circle and the outer part of that circle, that would be the square root of 3 if that was 1. So you have the beginnings of a root 3 progression, proportional progression there which has been used traditionally in the arts. Now, what I'd also like to say to you is that if you blow two bubbles on a flat, shiny surface and you put a bit of Ribena into the soap mixture you've got, because Ribena is very good for you, you know that, it's got vitamin C in it. You put Ribena in to colour it so you can see it. Blow two bubbles the same size, that's how they'll behave. The skin between the two bubbles will be there. One bubble like that, one bubble like that. If you blow it on a nice piece of shiny glass, wet glass, do that when you next go home with your children or grandchildren. You're going to hell of a mess. It's wonderful fun. Okay, next one here. That's what happens when you put three bubbles together. If you blow three bubbles of the same size, that's a, and I, forgive me, this is a drawing which should be the other way up, but I much prefer it this way up. Those are the centres of the bubbles, those are the skins between the bubbles, and those are the bubbles themselves. Again, we get an extraordinary close reproduction of the retrograde motions of Mercury, but this is just a luxury by me. Don't listen to anything I say too much. Okay, what happens if you go further? Next one over here. Now you can see the bubbles themselves. Once you get to there, you'll never get more than four bubbles relating. And it means that that angle there, even if it has to curve to come in, that angle where all these bubbles meet, that is one consistent angle. It's the same angle that the bees use at the back of the bee hive, the bee honeycomb, is 109 degrees 28 minutes. Most extraordinary thing. It's the most economic use of materials, that's why. But that is what happens with bubbles, and you have to get the back of the honeycomb, the front of the honeycomb, we all know is hexagons, you get the back of the honeycomb, you get this 109 degrees 28 minutes, that gives you a square root of 2 proportion. Square root of two proportion is that which is based on the currently accepted international concert piano tuning. 
Next one here. So, you might not recognize that, but you might recognize it very well. It's a painting of the universe by a Japanese master called Sengai. Now, he really ought to be a master in this place, but unfortunately he's gone, Dick, so we can't ask him to become a master. Sengai's painting of the universe. This is a Japanese universe, and it, you can see it starts here and it moves to there because the ink runs out from the, pe- the brush as he does it. The story is that he meditated for 24 hours before applying the brush to the paper, and when he applied the brush to the paper, he did it in a matter of seconds, that painting. And this represents heaven, this represents human consciousness, and this represents the earth. Three basic Buddhist symbols. All three are necessary to make a cosmos. The eternity of heaven, the knower, the known, and the knowing of consciousness, and the four elements, the four directions, the four, whatever, states of matter, making up material world. Now, if you take those, next one over here, into geometry, next one on that side, please. As I said before, all things start at a point, they become a line. The line can become, at minimum, a triangle. Next, less, least minimum, a square. And the other one, the line rotates to become a circle, that's these three here. Then take one further stage, point, line, plane to solid, you get a tetrahedron, you get a cube, and you get a sphere. And the sphere is the one which most recurs in the natural world, from the smallest to the largest, and the most embraced, the most comfortable in many ways. But each of those shapes have a different symbolic meaning and a different structural purpose. We find it much easier to live in rooms like that. Although, had we been a North American Indian, we might find it much more comfortable to be in there. Had we been an ex-Eskimo, we might find it more comfortable to live in that. That's a matter of cultural convenience. Next one here. So, let's just look at the sphere for a minute, the recurrence of the sphere. We're all very aware of, of, of the fact that we're in a galaxy. There's a galaxy. But not everybody's aware of the fact we love to take photographs of these wonderful spirals, but in fact the whole galaxy is spherical. According to the astronomers, the latest that I've had got information on is that it is. That is that there's a spherical light in which the, the main congestion of the spin takes round at the meridian. That is a galaxy. We are actually about there in the Milky Way, which is like a golden mean position to the middle. I say like a golden mean because I've never measured it. It's too big. Next one over there. Next one over there, please. So, sphere. What might that be? Anybody got any ideas? Yes? Yes, wonderful. Thank God somebody knows about these things. <laughs> it's a butterfly's egg. It happens to be an American butterfly. You'll excuse me on that, won't you? But what an extraordinary thing, and what a beautiful thing. That perfect geometric form becomes a caterpillar, lovely expression of a line. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly, wonderful expression of a plane, and etc., etc. But on this side, next one here. That is a thumb and that's a forefinger. What is that? The lady was bold enough to tell us that was the egg of a butterfly. This is the egg of a human being. It's actually at the limit of our perception of what, how we could see a point. Look how little we are. You're feeling big? Just imagine how little you were. Anyway, there we are at our beginning. 
And what's extraordinary, I'm just going to go through something now, I don't, please don't feel that I'm trying to push anything on you, but I, these are things which have rather amazed me, so I'm sharing them with you. Next one on this side, please. Absolutely no doubt about the superiority of the sexes in this whole business. I don't know why we needed to have this whole woman gender business. Look at it, look how... Uh, we can just about see the lady part of our first experience, but the man part you can't even see. Too small to see. But what's extraordinary about this is we all know that, that hundreds and thousands of these little sperms try to, be the, try to get to the egg and fertilize that egg. And the most extraordinary thing that I learned from Scientific American a few years ago was that the latest theory is that the egg itself, the egg itself, which is, which is quite astounding, does actually choose which sperm it wants and actually um, weakens the skin where that sperm is to, uh, uh, with hormones to allow that particular sperm in. Now, I can't confirm this. I'm not a scientist and don't believe a word I say, but it does make it rather remarkable, does it not? There are hundreds and thousands of suitors here, um, and the egg somehow chooses which one to come in. But I say, please don't believe me. Check it out yourselves, because I may be wrong. Next one here. So, what is the definition of life? Anybody got a contemporary scientific definition for life? It's not too extraordinary if you haven't got one, because the scientific world have not yet produced one. But the, one of the things they have produced is one definition of life, that which can experience. How about that? That which can experience. It has the property of being able to experience. So, what we can say is, our very first experience, once that sperm was let in and, and you got into the nucleus and decided that we were going to come into being, then our first experience was to be a sphere. That is our first experience. Our second experience, if, this, if one wants to take Euclid's definition of a line, which is a point at each end, our second experience was to be a line, a point at each end, given that we have to talk about this as being a point. It's a sphere as well. We've got two little angelic beings here, which I have no way of explaining at all. And they're the little angelic beings which actually organize everything. But that's... We're not sold this as, as, as the mystery it should be. Our third experience is to be a triangle. So what I'm suggesting to you, and our fourth experience and fifth experience, is that we go right through all the platonic figures in spherical form, according to the embryological research. So geometry is not something invented by man. It's something which we can recall. Because those were our first experiences. That's the whole point. Why did Plato preach anamnesis? Remembrance? Precisely because if you actually remember, then you will come to these absolutely fundamental first experiences and they will teach you the most basic geometry. Next one here on that side. So here we go. Another book of embryology produced this way. Point, line, plane, this time is not a triangle. This time is a square. The square becomes a cube. The cube becomes an icosahedron, the water molecule of Plato's Timaeus. But this happens to be a frog. Next one here. Now you know all the thing about princes and frogs, don't you? 
This is the lower animals, the frogs. Point, line, plane, square, solid, cube. But the human being does not do that. Human being, point, line, and it goes through a triangular form, which has not been drawn here. It does a little dance and becomes a tetrahedron, the first platonic figure. And then goes on and goes through the other. So it is a very extraordinary world. And there's no reason why embryologists and so forth, I happen to be lucky enough to have a son who did a PhD in embryology. And so I've been very fortunate with getting this material. But it's not in the minds or thoughts of embryologists to actually look at this, this as geometry. It's actually just charting what happens. When you get to 64, the number 64 might appeal to some people. When you get to 64, then invagination takes place. You've made your first complete journey. This is the 64 of the Chinese Book of Changes, if you like. Then you start turning into mushroom. You go through the whole vegetable cycle. And after you've done the vegetable cycle, you do the animal cycle, and then you come out and you become a human being. Next one here, please. Just a reminder that the moon is also spherical. Uh, actually, just, just check, there's another slide on that side on this. Yes, there is. I just wanted to make sure we go through this one. There is the very first cell before it starts splitting. From the first cell going through the point line, playing all the platonic figures to get to the 64 complete, that's, when it, that's that first cycle. What is that? That is one week. The seven days of creation, if you like, or the six days of creation, seven days of rest. Next seven days happens to be going through the whole vegetable cycle, the mushrooming. Next seven days goes through the whole animal cycle. So there's an extraordinary thing going on here, which may have no meaning whatsoever, but it might have a meaning that we go through this recapitulation of the creation every seven days. I just wanted to make this point about the moon. Every lady in this room is perfectly aware of the fact that every 28 days, their fertility cycle is completed. And they then form a new egg. They release the egg they had, and they form it, bring a new one in. So, direct relationship between this egg-making and the moon. Right, we're now going to make a change. Next one over there. And I'm just going to delve into Egypt a little bit because Egypt is the source of our knowledge of geometry. And Seshet, the god that I showed earlier, she brought the wisdom of, of geometry to the Egyptians. That extraordinary piece of sculpture we're looking at there is over 4,500 years old. It's as old going back to Christ, prior to Christ. Uh, just extraordinary. Now, you may say I'm not interested in naturalism. You may this, may that, may the other. But nevertheless, this, the sense of life in that queen, and forgive me, I've forgotten her name at the moment, begins with F. That queen is extraordinarily present in some way in that. Whether you want to explain it this way, that way, or the other. Her husband's actually sitting beside her here. But um, she herself is such a powerful figure. And that is 2,300 years before Christ, when that was made in ancient Egypt. So let's look at Egypt for a minute now. Next one here. There is Tutankhamun's tomb, which his body was laid in. And we have this extraordinary representation of these angelic figures going on here. And the way in which the human figure is represented, both side and front and goodness knows what. Um, amazing naturalism there, but the naturalism of late Egyptian art was the body was turned and twisted, but still 
gave the impression of being extraordinarily naturalistic. Next one there, or certainly brilliantly observed. Right, I'm just going to analyse this relationship because it is uh, my latest research. One should never actually put one's latest research up on a screen and give a lecture about it because you may be absolutely wrong and make a complete fool of yourself. Well, so be it if I do. I won't be asked again, will I, Dick? This is Seshet. She is the goddess and she's the wife of Hermes or Thoth. And she brought geometry to humankind as her husband brought letters and numbers to humankind, according to the Greek and even later Greek myths. Here is the living king at the time, and here is a goddess teaching a living king how to do geometry with rope stretching. We call this trammeling, don't we, Dick, now? Stretching ropes and twisting it. Both of them are using stakes to go into the ground. Both of them have got these things which look a little bit like clubs, although they're very slender for clubs, clubs, but they're both using... Now, we're going to look into that diagram to see how much geometry is being taught just by the images themselves. Now, I don't want anybody to feel they have to believe anything I'm about to show them, but I've been very rigorous in my analysis of this. And when you reach my age, you don't need to fool anybody, least of all yourself. Next one here. Sorry, there's one more to go. This relationship between the eternal world... A goddess is not subject to death, birth, or decay, but a king is. So this, this side of this imagery is about the always true, the eternal. This side is a life cycle of one person taking on the role of being a king. And the Amblicus, if you haven't come across the Amblicus, I highly recommend him. According to Iamblichus, the liberating gods, and remember gods were for freedom, for liberating your soul, were identified with the mean term, here we get proportion again, embracing two divine orders, the immaterial and the material, the immaterial and the material. So between the immaterial and the material, geometry is a bridge from the material to the immaterial. That's why we study it, that's why we use it, that's why it is sacred, that's why it supports sacred art. It leads you to that which will always be true. And you can leave the fashion world behind. Mind you, if somebody here is in the fashion world and making a fortune at it, please don't listen to the word I'm saying. Next one on the side. So the first thing I discovered was this little fellow here, this little diamond shape, was very important. It happened to be the fulcrum of an equilateral triangle. And this, the curve of the equilateral triangle followed the leg of the king rather remarkably accurately to here and back down to here. And that equilateral triangle came to the top of the physical body here and top of the height of the queen or goddess here. Okay, that was the first thing I discovered. These are hieroglyphs. I do have to admit I can't read them. And no doubt they're all profoundly important if I'm going to go into this any deeper. But there's the first piece of geometry. Next one here. Then we make a square from what we've just found. That's making a square, starting from the same basis, and drawing a part of a very, very old use of a proportional system, which is to take halfway along the square and, and do diagonals in it. Now, I've only done one or two of them because it, the drawings get so confusing and, and one can just get blinded by science, as my dad used to call it. But we've got the eyes of both of them on these. We've got the crossover of this one and this one on that baton. We've got the crossover of this one and 
central line here on that baton and so forth. There's a lot of things going on. Now, on that side, next one over there is the whole diagram. Should you want to do a bit of analysis, proportional analysis, that is a very, very beautiful diagram. The, the Egyptians were fascinated with the fact by drawing that diagram, you can divide that square into proportional squares up to um, 25 equal squares. These are nine equal squares that size. By taking the crossing over points there, you have complete control over getting proportional squares inside that area. It also happens to be a whole series of three, four, five triangles. It's made up of three, four, five triangles, the whole diagram. Very remarkable, very simple. And should you take that as one, that distance as one, this will be the square root of five, which is the basis of the golden mean. So each one of those diagonals can be seen as generating golden means, possibly, if we take, these, if we take the whole line as two, or one half of it as one. Next one on this side. So, tools. I'm eternally grateful to our current master, Dick. I'm sorry I keep calling you Dick, and I'm sure it's not respectful enough. Because Dick, I must say, has been the most extraordinarily generous and helpful to our students at Vita because he's actually let them use his tools. And in ancient times, um, very unlikely any master craftsman or even craftsman would necessarily share his tools. They were held very dear. In Islam... You're very lucky if you're even allowed to see the pair of dividers or compasses of a master craftsman. I found that when I went to Islam. They will not let you see them. They won't even admit they're using them. So that's something. These are tools used by the ancient Egyptians. Now, how many of these tools are actually still in use? One way or another. Slight adaptions. Apart from, God help us, the um, computers that now can do it all. Next one here is a version of this tool in metal now. One simple single piece of metal sharpened at both ends with one single piece of wood in it being handled by a, an eight-year-old boy in Fez in North Africa. And he is as fine a practical geometer as you can get. He is cutting most precisely these little tiles here. So precisely that when he's got made enough of these little pieces, they're put into bags, all the different shapes are given to him by the master. The master then takes these bags, has the chalk is laid out on the floor. Every single piece is laid upside down, so you can't even see the color of it, on the floor. Then plaster and scrim are poured all over these pieces. And when they've done that enough times, they then lift the thing up and they see, they pick it up and they see the pattern for the first time. Everything is a training in imagination, visual, perceptual imagination. And here's the result of what that boy is making. Next one here. Next one on this side. Now imagine assembling that upside down so you can't even see the pieces, you can't even see the colors. That's what they do. Then they pour this plaster over it, and they put the scrim over that, and then they pick it up, and they place it on the wall. That's, he has had to cut all these little shapes in here. The one that he's cutting there now is possibly this one here. But that is a contemporary art, science, whatever you want to call it, in North Africa, and it's using a tool which is identical to the same tools that used in ancient Egypt 4,000 years ago. Next one. 
Next one over there, please. Next one there. Um, so, let's just have a look at a brief indication of what this... This is the bridge between the eternal world of gods and goddesses and the natural world of people who are born and die. And this is the meeting ground. Geometry is the meeting ground to lead the, that which is going to be born and die to get a taste or flavor of what will never die. So here, the first thing we find, we draw a circle in here, and I find this rectangle here is a root 3 rectangle. Square root of 3 rectangle inside that circle. The circle just tangents this, which is the rope indicated, and going down the edges of these two staffs here makes a root 3 rectangle. If you then do a diagonal of that root 3 rectangle and swing it up, you get a root Two, a root four rectangle. Root four rectangle is two, so that's a double square. That will be a double square. The diagonal of that double square is how you get the golden mean. We swing that up and we get the tops of the hands of the two people involved. That's the square root of five rectangle would be to there. So already there's a great number of implications going on. I don't want to push this too hard because I've got to do a lot more research myself and make sure I get the originals absolutely accurately. But already the language is being indicated there. Next one on this side. So, the most sacred tool of the lot is, was, and always will be, although I doubt that many people in this room who are architects still use compasses. I should not doubt this, but I'm doubt, I know one that does. He's looking at me right now. <laughs> um, but we just recently did a course at the Prince's Institute, and we found that none of them use compasses. So we make them use them. The compass is the, the most divine of all tools. It's the most amazing tool. It's a heavenly tool because it makes circles. But the symbolism of the dividers, this is unitas essentia. Unus Deus. That's the one God. The division of the one God, first of all, is the leg, which is the fixed leg. The immobile, unchanging nature between God and the world. And this which is the path of the opening of the dividers, is called the amount of love or lack of love from the center to the periphery. This is the leg of this world, the mundum. So this circumscribes the whole of the material creation, the making of a circle. Now these things were known and were quite comfortably known in the past, and that's one of the reasons why it's considered to be such an important and hallowed tool, because it does. And next one here. Next one, the same. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm not sure whether they put a slide in or not. But just in case I didn't put a slide in, what you're looking at there is also a statement by Jesus Christ about his own nature. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What you're looking at there is the Alpha, which is the compasses, the A, and the circle is the Omega. And don't forget, he was brought up in a carpenter's shop. Jesus Christ, as a child, was brought up in a carpenter shop. He was certainly would have learnt to use squares, tools, compasses, all these things as part of his natural upbringing, if you want him to. Right, I just wanted to bring this in because this helps me in the next piece of analysis I'm going to make. This is the way measures were done in ancient Egypt. We're here we have remens and digits and palms and cubits and goodness knows what. Three, four, five. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use three, four, and four again to get to there. That's the shoulder joint before we get to there. And go back to the, my analysis on here. Next one here, please. 
Okay, we're going to go from here. To, we're going to use these joints in a minute. But in the meantime, I just wanted to point out that her baton is pointing to this, and his baton is pointing to the point in that little diamond there. Slight interesting difference. There's interesting story behind that, but we haven't got time at the moment. So we have the next one on that side there. This is a rather curious thing, but it's a reminder that anatomy and physiology is not shared by traditional peoples, our modern anatomy and physiology. I happen to have been at an age where a friend of our family was a very distinguished surgeon at St. George's Hospital. And I happened to ask him, this is going back some years, about acupuncture. He said, there's no scientific basis for it whatsoever. But, he said, it does actually work. So what we're looking at here is a Tibetan spiritual anatomy of the body. I use the word spiritual for the want of a better word. How the flow of chi or the, the life energy flows through the body. And again, these positions in the body are highly marked. These are called chakras down the middle. We're, we're most of us um, conversant with the idea of, of these wheels. As called. The word chakra meaning, meaning wheel. But there are very important chakras at these junctions as well. So that, again, taking these junctions. Next one over there, please. Next one on that side. There are the junctions. One, two, three. Then the center of the geometry. Four, five, six. So I found the center of the arc, which will go through those, and completed a 12-sided figure. Now, this may not look very marked, but if anyone wants to scrutinize this, the drawing is actually on the table at the end here. That, where these cross over, anybody who's drawn recently a 12-petal flower, they cross over at a certain point. You see the little petal in here, little petal there? That square in there happens to give you exactly the proportions of the lower geometry. Okay? The top of the square links the two mouths. The top here of these two links the eyes and so forth. And there's just so many different strange things going on. And not strange at all. For the Egyptians, it would be very knowledgeable. The king was having to be put into the same, if you like, spiritual frame of mind, receptivity, whatever you want to call it, state of consciousness by the goddess to make sure he totally experienced the geometry he was going through. Next one here. So, should we wish, and sorry, the next one on that side as well, together. This is Seshet, this is the goddess from a different drawing, a drawing by Lucy Lame. Lucy Lame was the adopted daughter of Shwala de Lubitsch. And if you really want to get into, heavily into geometry, the temple of man by Shwala de Lubitsch is the book to get into. She has this extraordinary thing above her head. I'm calling it a halo. Goodness knows whether it's called a halo as far as they're concerned because it's not behind her head. But that's a module which goes into her body exactly four times. Okay? That's extraordinary eight star up there. This is just an example. If we go from here, if that's a a musical chord and we, we tune it to a musical note and we damp it off halfway there, and pluck it again, then we have exactly an octave higher. It sounds an octave higher. So these are octave reductions of circles on the human body. We can call this the action body, the bigger one, the instinctive body, the evaluative body, the sensorial body, and the intellectual body, if you want to. But they are, each of those are one, exactly one 
if that, if that is one, then the next one is two. If that is two, the next one is four, and so forth. And they are a proportioning system which has been used at other times. Next one here. So there are the four intervals. If we take the four big ones and overlap them, which is a traditional thing to do, we get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, musical octave, if you like. And there are two in the top thing, which goes to ten, which is known as the sacred tetractus, if you're in the business. We'll move on to the next one here, please. So let us move forward in time, if we want to call it forward in time, to St. Demetrius, St. Demetrius the Saint. These two gentlemen are priests who are alive. They're in their bodies when this mosaic was down on the wall. Because We know that because they're got, they have square halos that, that tells us they're alive. St. Demetrius is a saint, and he is in the saintly realm, rather like Sushet in a way. So here's St. Demetrius. This is on the wall of this church, St. Demetrius, in Thessalonica in Greece. So let's just see if there's any possible connection between what I've demonstrated here, whether it's used or not, or something else. Next one here is taking this as the module. That is the statement that he is sacred. He's reached that level of sainthood. The ever true, the eternal. And so we put a series of circles overlapping here, and we find they come exactly and beautifully to here. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and the ninth one will be his halo. Right, well, what I was fascinated to discover when I made this discovery here was to look at the church itself. Next one here. Take that geometry. Next one here. No, no. Next one on this side. There's the same geometry, and there's the plan of the church. And these positions are very precise. When you first enter the narthex, then you get enter into the body of the church itself. You have these number of intervals until you reach here, the high altar probably, and then the chorus behind here. That's exactly the same pattern that you saw on St. Demetrius. There is a section through that church, extraordinary, these long, tall, thin Greek Orthodox churches. And everything on here has a very precise meaning on its way to heaven. Up here you have the totally heavenly beings and slowly the descent of the spirit going down, shown in the icons. Next one here. Same proportions running down the section through the building. And I've used the distance between here as to where the crossing over points are of the circles. That's how I got that proportion. So not only is it laying the plan, it's also laying the elevation. And not only that, should I know enough about it, or should anybody know enough about it, each one of these circles is not too far away, down on the way to south coast. And that's another piece of architecture I have been involved with. I have to say, fortunately, with John Allen, who's come here tonight, I'm very grateful for him being here. And this is, again, a study in trying to design a building which, if you went into it, you wouldn't be able to say when it was built. Just a different attitude. Next one over here. And the hospital that I had the good fortune to be asked to design in India. Again, John Allen was my chief support. And Dick Reed designed that bit. (laughs) Master Reed. 
Um, I can remember drawing on the floor in my studio. Dick came in and he wouldn't draw on, on a drawing board or anything like that. He immediately got up the chalk on the floor. And that's right. It's pretty. That, that thing up there, very important. That happens to be the, it was anyway, I don't know if it is, still is, the second largest private hospital in Asia. And it has the thing which is best about it probably is that it has the lowest death rate of any hospital in the planet in terms of carrying out super speciality operations and so forth. But again, I was designing within the language of the place, which is in central India, and trying to design within the aesthetics, one might say, whatever you want to call it, the forms which were correct for that part of the world. Next one here. Just a bit of propaganda to finish with. Sacred art refers both the viewer and the maker to the divine source. This, to me, is what it's all about. But it doesn't have to be. I'm not suggesting everybody else has to follow the same route. Next one on there. And this is just in the nature of an advertisement. If anybody here fancies going to experience sacred architecture in its deepest and most preserved state, we are taking a group of people next um, Easter to Chartres Cathedral. Um, so that's what your paper you're sitting on probably by now tells you all about. So there's two pieces. Of, this is the most extraordinary experience to actually walk that labyrinth. That's the journey of the soul as laid out in the time that it was laid. Next one here. Of course, one of the greatest and most revered works of art in Europe, as far as I'm concerned, the great north window at Chartres. Extraordinary, extraordinary thing. With the black virgin at the centre. She's black very important part of the mythology of, of Christianity at that time was the Virgin Mary was black. Next one, last two slides, and the last one on this side here. From my client, from the building I did in the country. Thank you for being so patient. questions. I'll, I'll soon say if I can't answer them. The questions come in the middle of the night, Dick. Sorry? The questions come in the middle of the night. And then you wished, you wished I had a mobile phone so you could phone me up and wake me up and say, what the hell did you mean by that? This lady here has a question. What one shall we do? What should we do? What you do? Yeah, if you're if you're a very sympathetic theory about the universe is one might like like to believe, then what does one do? One just gets on with one's life. Purpose of life? To help other people. Okay. Very simple. Help other people. Not in the way you want them to behave, but in the way they ask you. Now if I can be of help to you, you must write it down and send it to me and I'll see if I can help. Simple as that. Sorry? Just people? Just paper? Did you? Just people? Or Just, all 
Um, well, I say people because they're the most immediate thing that we're going to have. Of course we should help everything, all life, all creation, um, because we're all part of the same network. So, but um, people are usually the thing which most in need of help come to you. If you've got a family as big as mine, I can tell you. <laughs> Twelve grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, they all have problems. So you have to help them all the time. But I've been a teacher most of my life, so I know what that's about. It's about helping students. And when you help a student, you're not teaching a student a skill necessarily. And I expect Dick will confirm this. The people who come to work for you, you're helping them through their life. Is that not true, Dick? And, and by taking on a skill, it's a metaphor for coping with your life. That's what I understood anyway. Work is good for the soul. Work is good for the soul. Work is worship. Well, oh, sorry. There's, there's one more question. There's a loop player. Just the last question. Yes. Uh, no, it's just about how you in your hospital. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I certainly believe that myself. And uh, curious enough, the fact that we've got the lowest death rate on the planet for hospitals that do that kind of work may be an indication. But a very simple thing is you have a window, square at the bottom, round at the top. That actually tells you something terribly important, that you're in this world below, but you have this world to look forward to. And as the Tibetans say, the final medicine, if all other medicines don't work, is death. <laughs> but you've got to have somewhere to go. Sorry? Sorry, okay. Yes? Just a very practical question. Sure. A lot of medieval churches, I think, are laid out on a one by root two mm -hmm. layout. Yes. Just which is roughly one by one point four one. Yes. More or less the same as the proportion of the A. Three, four, five bits of paper that you. Yes, buy yes, and use. yes, yes. It's also proportionally often used in ready made canvases, this 7x5. Yes, yes. 10x14. Yes. But what is. Just briefly, what is. Well, one sentence. What is, what is root 3, 1 by what? It's, like uh, it's oh, now you. Ask me a different. He goes into his pocket for his calculator, he hasn't got it, so um, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Um, one point. Yes, I don't think in numbers. You see, the trouble is, I think in. And if I think in, if you say to me, "What's a root three rectangle?" I think immediately of two equilateral triangles. One of them, it's the hourglass. <coughs> I, I hardly think in numbers at all. In fact, I was a duffer at school. But all, all the proportions used by painters have different problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One is discarded and one is then becomes a smaller number of the next proportion up. And mm -hmm. the French. Yes. I think they call them marine portrait and landscape and so on. And they are also related to geometry. Yes. Very old, actually. Sure, sure. Well, P Palladio was one of the best examples. As my friend there with this wonderful set of red things going down his chakras. Um, Palladio um, only released the root two rectangle. He actually said the rest of them were whole number proportions. There were three by five, um, four by three, and so forth. They were musical proportions of whole numbers. On the whole, these numbers I've been talking about tended to be kept 
if, for want of a better word, esoteric and private, because they didn't want to baffle, they didn't want to baffle people who were not, couldn't handle numbers which went on forever. And we are very happy now to teach children the sun is in the middle and we're going around it. You've all been brought up on it. Can you see the sun still and, and, and you going around it? Can anybody say, experience that? You see what, 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 how dangerous certain kinds of knowledge... Mechanically, absolutely right. But psychologically, the sunrise and the sunset are the great joys and challenges of everybody's day. So why try and get rid of them? Carry on. I'm waiting. No, no, I, I don't use this eye. I only use this one. <laughs> yes. I was asked to by him. The geometry is, was about exactitude. You only touched on music just a couple of times. Yes. And of course the intervals don't work that way because you have this thing called the Pythagorean Lemma. puzzle. Yes, yes, in, sure. In which you go, you go sure. on a scale in fifths. Yes. You, you don't end up in the same place. Same place, that's right. I'm not expecting to necessarily explain exactly, <laughs> but it does contradict the yes. exactitude sure. of the organization. Yes, yes. Well, um, it's interesting how we've tried to deal with that by adopting this root two, the international piano scale, based on the square root of two. Quite honestly, the Pythagorean, with its little lemma, is far more healthy to the soul, as far as I'm concerned, than us trying to find a mathematical formula which makes it exact, which we've all agreed to. But, but it does not tune, I don't think it tunes with the soul. It may tune with the ear and it may be an international agreement. But I think that little lemma in there is like most of these little things which happen in, 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 in mathematics and geometry. They're reminders that the human mind is not the final arbiter of these things. There's always this little joker in a pack. So uh, if you want me to give a talk about music, that's another thing. Another. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Keith. Uh, Keith, Keith's lecture ends my year of lectures and as far as I'm concerned after tonight I think I'm going out on a high, on a high. <laughs> um, I've been absolutely riveted and I hope you all have so can you show your appreciation